For some time now, there have been calls for Canada to launch an independent public inquiry into its handling of the COVID pandemic, including from the British Medical Journal. But this past week, as reported by Blacklock's reporter, Liberal MPs rejected an inquiry, opting for a closed-door review by advisors to the Minister of Health. But my guest on today's program says that it is in fact essential that Canadians examine the mistakes that were made during the pandemic and learn from them. Joanna Barron is the Executive Director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation and the co-author with Christine Van Gyne of a new book, Pandemic Panic, How Canadian Government Responses to COVID-19 Changed Civil Liberties Forever. Joanna Barron is my guest today on Lean Out. Joanna, welcome to Lean Out. Great to be with you, Tara. It's so nice to have you on. This is a really fascinating book and I think an important one. I also want to commend you and your co-author for making really difficult and sometimes dry subject matter very readable. We're constitutional lawyers, so we find things that most people would find dry to be thrilling, but we realize that most people don't feel that way. (laughs) Well, I found it incredibly readable. So to dive in, as Blacklocks reported last week, Liberal MPs on the Commons Health Committee have rejected a public inquiry into federal pandemic management, instead opting for a closed-door review by advisors to the Minister of Health. You write that most Canadians have memory hold the long three years that we spent in the COVID pandemic. And your book reminded me, for instance, that restaurants in Toronto, where I live, were closed for more than 360 days over the pandemic, the longest city of any in the world, as far as I know. And schools in Ontario were shut for more than seven months. Just to start today, what are the consequences of us all forgetting what went on? Yeah, well, I should say part of the impetus for myself and my co-author, Christine, to write this book was, I think it was at some point in late 2021 or early 2022, we would we would remember things that happened, like taping off cherry blossoms or uh, arresting a guy who was uh, skating on a pond in Calgary. And we were just like, oh my God, that actually happened? Like, it seems like a surreal movie. And we realized that if we who uh, I'm executive director of a legal charity, Christine is our litigation director. If these things weren't top of mind for us, then ordinary Canadians who have moved on with their lives surely weren't going to remember these things as well. And as you say, um, it can be shocking to kind of look at some of the facts. Yes, Toronto, Ontario had, had some of the lengthiest lockdowns in the world. And so all of these things, if we forget them, which I think I say in the introduction is sort of a salubrious impulse. Like, yes, we should move on. We should reintegrate into our lives. Uh, We shouldn't, you know, I think it's like a very well-adapted impulse to not just become traumatized and people who have, you know, remained stuck in the pandemic mindset. I'm sure you know some of those people who still wear N95 masks outside. You know, that's not good either. But there is a lot of risk in terms of our future civil liberties to forget what we, and I mean, we collectively, the Canadian people who largely supported many measures, 
politicians, judges, kind of what happened. Um, and we will certainly be more likely to allow it to happen if we don't learn the many lessons that we think are available to learn from this collective experience. So the the book is organized by charter rights, including freedom of assembly and movement and expression and religion, which you argue were violated. Can you give us a few really standout examples of what you see as some of the worst violations that occurred during the pandemic? Yeah, let me see. Where should I start? Okay. So in terms of freedom of assembly, just to give a sense of how poorly the exercise of that right was balanced with public health objectives, which by the way, to be clear, we don't deny that public health objectives are important. We don't deny that it is appropriate and rightful for the government to take steps to reduce viral transmission. But that has to be counterbalanced with the acknowledgement of rights. So just as a sort of high watermark at how irrational things became, we represented at one point a lone protester named Robert Bristol, who was a small business owner in Kingston. And he decided to protest against Ontario's lockdown measures by himself outside with a mask on outside of Kingston City Hall. uh, And he was arrested. He was arrested for violating a lockdown order. Now, clearly there were, uh, you know, it would be more dangerous to go to the grocery store and pick up milk than to stand alone outside Kingston City Hall protesting um, on a broader level. And by the way, the CCF represented him and we were able to argue that the charges should be withdrawn. And so the charges were withdrawn. But another example that I just keep coming back to because I think it was so wrong and also the way that the judiciary responded to the very serious violation of rights was, and this may be something that many people of memory hold, the quarantine hotels, which were brought in in spring and summer of 2021, where if you left the country by plane, you had to stay at an approved uh, hotel facility for three days to the tune of about $2,000 while awaiting the results of a second COVID test. And by the way, at the time, if the COVID test was positive, you would be allowed to go home and quarantine, which raises the question of what was the point of paying $2,000 for this interstitial step. And so the CCF, we challenged this, this government policy on behalf of several individuals who had to travel for very compassionate reasons. These are not spring breakers. This was a man who had to go to France to make end of life arrangements for his elderly mother with dementia. Another man who lived in Vancouver, whose wife lived in Washington state, who had broken her shoulder and she couldn't even you know, wash her own hair. And these were not wealthy people. These were not people for whom $2,000 uh, was really viable in addition to extra time off work and so on. And so we challenged this as a violation of the rights to life, liberty, and security of the person movement. And the judge found that there was no even violation of rights. So in sort of constitutional law cases, you can find that there's a violation of a right, but say that on balance, given other public policy objectives, it was justified. That's called section one. But the judge neglected to even find there was a violation, and he called these first world economic problems. And I just think if you're going to collapse something like your ability to go be with your mother in the days before her death as a first world economic problem, there's a real problem. There's a real issue with how much teeth our charter rights have. So I think the judiciary has a lot to answer for in particular. 
One of the examples that stood out to me in the book was Shandro's Law, initiated by then Alberta Minister of Health, Tyler Shandro. And you say he amended the Public Health Act so that information obtained by the chief medical officer could be given to any police service. There was no debate around it. No studies or public consultation were conducted. You write that for the first time in Canadian history, a law passed by a duly elected Democratic legislature was unilaterally altered by a single politician affecting overriding democracy in an act of executive authority. Can you comment a little bit on that case? Yeah, certainly. So it kind of falls into this category. I think that we talk about that in our chapter on democracy and the rule of law, that you have this ancient concept that where uh, this comes from Cicero, actually, where the salus populi, where public safety is in question. Basically, there's justification for ordinary democratic procedures to be sidestepped. So you saw that in Chandra's law or called Bill 10 in Alberta, where there was just a direct parsing out of that cabinet could unilaterally make decisions without bringing them up for debate in the legislature. Ontario did a similar thing when uh, in summer of 2020, the formal declaration of the state of emergency from the pandemic was ended, but it was it was replaced with something called the Reopening Ontario Act, which actually indefinitely extended the state of emergency and allowed, again, the executive to make orders to override healthcare unions. And I think the impetus for that was to be able to, you know, transfer staff as necessary, which perhaps you could say, okay, there was some functional justification for that. But as far as I'm aware, there's no principle that allows major decisions like that to be taken outside of the elected representatives, right? The legislature. I also, uh, this is definitely something that most people memory hold. I memory hold myself. I even memory hold, by the way, that at the time this happened, Andrew Scheer was still the leader of the Conservative Party. But right at the outset of the pandemic in March 2020, one of the first things the federal liberals did was bring in a bill that would give them the power to unilaterally you know, raise taxes, raise tax increases. And their justification was you know, we're going to have to bring in these extraordinary pandemic support measures, which of course they did. And, you know, we need to be able to act swiftly. And there's a very strong principle that the taxation power is not something the executive can take out of debate of parliament. You can't just say this is more convenient for us and faster for us. So we're going to you know, circumvent the legislature. Luckily, there was a sort of big outcry from all of the other parties in parliament, including Andrew Scheer, but also the NDP um, and the liberals walked that back. But they, they did try for the first time in history. Uh, and I'm sure there are some people who saw the rationale. I also wanted to raise the issue of what what's happened to the fabric of Canadian society. So one of the other things that really stood out to me in the book is the use of snitch lines. I had not remembered that. And that the government was relying on citizens to enforce policies. What do you think that did to the fabric of Canadian society? Well, it kind of increased the polarization, I would say, from the bottom all the way up. We, we say all the way down, but it also went all the way up. So as a reminder, I think almost every province had snitch lines. And Christine, my co-author, has a kind of funny, kind of sad anecdote in the book that I think in the fall of 2020, she had a friend who had a birthday party for her one-year-old baby in her driveway in Toronto with five other moms and babies. 
you know, socially distanced. And the neighbor saw this baby birthday party taking place and called the cops and the cops showed up and, and broke it up. So this really happened. The same thing happened in uh, Christmas of 2020. And this one was a bit more violent, unfortunately. In Gatineau, a neighbor called and said, I, I think that the family next door to me is having friends over for Christmas dinner. And the cops broke into the house and there was a pretty violent altercation because um, the people there were like, what are you doing breaking up our Christmas dinner? But I say it went all the way up as well because we talk about this in the book that it was very clear as soon as the fall 2021 federal snap election was called that the prime minister was going to drive a wedge issue, the issue of unvaccinated people, people who were skeptical of public health measures, really tried to push Aaron O'Toole on not having vaccine mandates for everybody in his caucus. Of course, Aaron O'Toole wasn't exactly a vaccine skeptic or anything like that. So it was kind of questionable. Um, but as many people will remember, he went on media uh, calling unvaccinated people misogynist and racist. They even brought in the liberal government, even brought in that fall, no doubt in connection with this election a specific protest ban around hospitals with the argument that this was necessary to protect healthcare workers when actually it's already a crime to prevent a healthcare worker from accessing their work. So it was just, you know, identity politics and wedge politics. And I've heard from many people that this did a lot of damage to direct families. I was giving a talk at Concordia last week um, and a student told me that he doesn't talk to half of his family anymore. I suppose because he was a 20-year-old young man who knew he was probably at about equal risk of getting pericarditis as he was an adverse impact from the COVID vaccine. I'm not making any comment on that, uh, but that was his decision. And half of his family doesn't speak to him anymore. So I think we were whipped up into a sort of frenzy. And I think many people said things and made judgments and distanced themselves in ways that will have to be personally accounted for. And I just really regret that it seems that our government got in on that as well. And we will now talk about the, the truckers and the Emergencies Act, which is just a huge, huge story for Canada. But before we do that, we have a lot of American listeners on this podcast as well. Can you just outline for our listeners who may not be familiar, just the broad strokes of the kind of vaccine mandates that were put in place? So every province in Canada, including ones that said that they would never bring in a vaccine mandate or vaccine passport, ended up bringing in a vaccine passport. Um, direct mandates, this is a little bit poorly understood. There weren't direct mandates from the Canadian government for every citizen to become vaccinated. There were mandates for federal employees. Many employers required their employees to get vaccinated. Universities brought in vaccine mandates. This is not something we ever litigated because charter rights are rights you have against the government. So even if the government is your employer, your relationship with your employer is an employee-employer relationship. Um, so that was probably the most common email I got. I can't you do something for me? I lost my job. And of course, my heart goes out to those people. I think it's awful. There was actually a really promising military tribunal decision this fall that found that vaccine mandates for members of the armed forces were against the human rights code. Um, this is not directly a constitutional issue. However, vaccine passports, which said you cannot go to a restaurant, go to a movie theater, even, by the way, gather in homes, private homes above specified amounts of people if you don't have if you don't have a vaccine passport. 
And in particular, there were a few provinces that did this with no medical exemptions. So Manitoba initially tried to bring in a vaccine passport with no medical exemptions. We did some strong letter writing campaigns and we were able to get an amendment to that. But British Columbia never had medical exemptions. And so one of our major pandemic litigation projects, which is actually still ongoing, was challenging this program on behalf of three individuals who had very sort of straightforward medical reasons why they couldn't be vaccinated. For example, a 13-year-old girl named Erica who received her first dose of the Pfizer vaccine and developed pericarditis and was told by her own doctor that it would be inadvisable to take the second dose. And BC's system made it so that if she wanted an exemption to go to dinner with her family or even you know go out with her her boyfriend she would have to apply on a case by case basis so on every instance to essentially get permission to go to the movies which if you know anything about how the pace at which government moves not very workable so we challenged that it was rejected at first instance for reasons I won't get into but we have appealed it so we're hoping to have that decision uh, reversed on appeal but yes, uh, vaccine passports for a period of, I believe, almost a year. Again, this kind of goes into the the mash. You had to show show your medical documents to go to a restaurant. <laughs> uh, it was it was pretty surreal. I always found it sick and off putting. Um, it never made me feel safe. And actually, there's just been new research come out over the last few weeks from the. Canadian Medical Journal that found that these passports, which were brought in in part to induce more people to get vaccinated, had almost a negligible effect. And this is the climate that we were in in this country leading up to the trucker blockades in Ottawa. So a very combustible moment in Canadian history. And this was to do originally with the uh, mandate at the border for truckers crossing back and forth, um, which was put in place late in the game. Um, It had not been in place for, for the first, I guess, two years of the pandemic. So can we talk a little bit about the protests themselves. So um, convoy organizer Tamara Litch has called the protest a love fest, while our prime minister called it a fringe minority with unacceptable views. Media reports, meanwhile, raised questions about a contingent who wanted to overthrow the government and pointed to extremist participants like Pat King. What seemed to me to be missing in the public conversation around these protests was nuance. How would you describe these protests? Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I think it was a Rorschach test that basically you could see what you wanted to see. My belief, having not attended the protests, but having had many friends and, and journalists who attended, was that the overwhelming majority of people at these protests were of good faith. They were working Canadians. They were people, some of whom were vaccinated, some of whom were not, who simply felt degraded. Particularly, this is, you know, January of 2022, right after this incredibly divisive federal uh, federal campaign where they were scapegoated, as you said, as a fringe minority with unacceptable views. And the the trucker cross-border mandate was just the veil de trop. It's just it had almost no medical justification since most truckers are alone in their cabs. Um, and it seemed again, again at just, you know, poking and dehumanizing 
further for some identity politics end. So at the same time, uh, we just talk about in the book, it is not lawful to occupy all of downtown Ottawa with big rigs and trucks indefinitely. That's not lawful. The right to protest does not mean the right to occupy a whole downtown, block roadways, force businesses to shut down. So we are not opposed to, we we're not opposed to certain law enforcement actions being taken to clear downtown Ottawa at some point. We were opposed to the invocation of nationwide war measures to do that, but maybe we'll get to that in a moment. Um, but I think you're exactly right, that there was a lack of nuance. You could see what you wanted to see. My sense is no, they were not all Nazis who wanted to overthrow the government, but certainly it sounds like there were some uh, unsavory elements in the mix as well. Like any any street protest movement, to be honest, we're seeing this now in the Israel-Palestine context, you know, shady people show up. And that doesn't mean that the whole thing is evil or unlawful or not protected by the rights to free assembly, for that matter. And the government uh, famously instructed banks to monitor and freeze the accounts of anyone participating in or assisting with the trucker convoy. No court order uh, reporting the personal financial information of customers to the RCMP and CSIS. This move attracted international attention. I still hear about this from journalists outside of Canada. Walk me through the CCF's main concerns with this. Yeah. So on February 14th, 2022, when the prime minister announced he was invoking the Emergencies Act, it immediately created what I would call a de facto constitutional amendment where new criminal laws could be created and imposed. The two in particular that they brought in was first, a law that any cop anywhere in the country could stop a gathering if they had reason, reason to believe that it could result in a breach of the peace. That is very permissive language. So it's basically any protest. I mean, any protest could possibly, quote unquote, lead to a breach of the peace. Um, so essentially, it created an immediate chill effect across the country on otherwise peaceful, lawful gatherings. And second, and I agree, this was the part that I remember watching this, this press conference and just texting Christine and being like, WTF, like it, did, she, did Chrystia Freeland say what I think she just said, that we are going to freeze bank accounts without a warrant, indemnify banks against later claims of having acted negligently, so they don't have to be worried at all if they have the right person or if this person actually is a convoy supporter or organizer? Like This, this is shocking stuff. Um, and we know that bank accounts were frozen that were joint spousal bank accounts. So the spouse couldn't buy groceries or pay the bills in the middle of brutal winter in Canada. We know that there were attempts to ma made to freeze crypto wallets um, and that various exchanges. We know that uh, as a side effect, that whole lists of, of supporters um, were essentially leaked and doxed online, which is, of course, a separate matter. But I, I agree. And this was immediately understood across the world as a very terrifying precedent, because going forward, what you can sort of logically deduce is that if you are supporting a cause that the prime minister personally disagrees with, you are at risk of having your livelihood taken away. That, that, itself, is, uh, that itself is a huge tear to the fabric of our democracy. I, I know that sounds hyperbolic, but I, I don't think it is. I do think that it is worth stressing the chilling effect of that. As a journalist, as soon as that happened, I started getting emails from people who had donated small amounts to the convoy, terrified about action being taken against them. Um, so 
The Canadian Constitution Foundation has argued in court during a judicial review that the threshold to invoke the act, the Emergencies Act, was not met as the existing legal tools were not exhausted and that the cabinet did not have reasonable grounds to believe that the trucker protest posed a threat to Canada, a security threat to Canada, and that the freezing of bank accounts was unconstitutional. Um, what was the government's response to these arguments so the government's response was first on the question of the threshold of threats to the security of Canada. So the Emergencies Act links that standard to the definition, the same language in the CSIS Act. And we know from evidence that there was a separate hearing called the Rouleau Commission or the Public Order Emergency Commission, which was really useful because we got to hear a lot of testimony from kind of every player that was involved in this. And so we know that CSIS, its director testified that within the meaning, from its perspective, there was no quote unquote threat to the security of Canada. We also know the RCMP, the Ontario Provincial Police, the Ottawa Police came to the same conclusion um, that there wasn't an actual threat of terrorism or violence. All of these are broken down in the act. So now when the government came, when particularly Prime Minister Trudeau came to testify at the Rouleau Commission, he argued that the, the threshold of threats to the security of Canada had to be understood from the vantage point of the governor in council, meaning him as chair of the cabinet incident committee. And so on, on the evidence he was getting, he concluded there was a threat to the security of Canada. Now, when we tried to push him on, was there an alternative threat assessment performed? Did you have evidence? Did you have reports? Did you have, for example, even a legal opinion? that we could use to assess the reasonableness of your decision. And we know that no alternative threat assessment was produced. We know that from Jody Thomas, his national security advisor, that they didn't produce, you know, do their own research and do their own consultation with law enforcement. It's hard to see where where else they could have gotten it from, because we know all of law enforcement came to the conclusion that this was very bad and very inconvenient, but not a threat to national security. And when it came to the legal opinion to see the legal reasoning upon which they concluded the threshold was met, they they asserted uh, solicitor client privilege. Um, so this was a real point of tension at the Rouleau Commission that Justice Rouleau himself tried to push the government on. You know, how am I supposed to assess the reasonableness of your decision if you're just putting up a black box every time we try and see see what was inside? But indeed, the government ended up going on and arguing this that essentially the CSIS Act, for all intents and purposes, had to be severed from the Emergencies Act. And I realize this sounds a little legalese. All it means basically is that the prime minister could make his own decision based on his own conclusion of the severity of the situation. And that was their argument. In terms of the financial measures, they argued that this was not an unreasonable search, that again, because of the pressing the you know, nature of the emergency and uh, how you know the funds were flowing in, pretty large amounts of funds were flowing in to keep this protest going, that was keeping it going you know, seemingly indefinitely, that this was necessary. I, I can say, I'm not sure how the judge in the judicial review, Justice Mosley, is going to rule. We hope to have that decision by Christmas. But I can say when it came to the government's argument that the freezing of bank accounts was not an unreasonable search. He did not seem to be buying that at all. <laughs> like, the, And how could he? Of course, it's an unreasonable search, freezing a bank account without a warrant. This is like criminal law 101. 
And I want to just spend a moment on the media and the media coverage of this particular story as someone who has followed it in the kind of granular detail that you did and and then looked at all of this with your with your book. What are your sort of general impressions about how the media did on that story? Well, I, th- I think the media uh, kind of followed the polarization. I saw a lot of reporting that would see, as, as I mentioned, I don't deny that there were creepy people who showed up at these protests. We saw uh, what happened at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, a little bit debatable as to whether there was, I think there was a swastika at some point. So you, you definitely saw sort of magnification of that. On the other hand, my impression, and maybe I'm in a bubble, was that when it came to the Emergencies Act, there was real questions about that. And for example, in terms of lawyers and lawyers who were speaking to the media a lot in the weeks following February 14th, I'm not aware of any lawyer who saw that this was justified. And so I do think that that was expressed pretty clearly in the media. I personally was a big fan of Matt Gurney at the line. He did some amazing reporting where he actually went to Ottawa, got to know people, had conversations. And he ended up saying, as I did, that if you want to find shady guys, you can find shady guys. If you want to have a love fest where you get a free hot dog, you can have that as well. Um, So I made a sort of deliberate deliberate attempt to follow journalists who I could trust. Uh, But I know many people didn't because I had family members personally chastise me for being involved in the invocation of the Emergencies Act. I think the sense that they got was just, look, this is an international embarrassment, particularly with the border blockades. This doesn't seem to be ending anytime soon. Like the government just had to do something. And look, I, I understand that. I don't think that's how the law works. And moreover, I think When you saw what the government did once they had the tremendous uh, tools of the Emergencies Act, on the one hand, actually clearing the protests was very ordinary police powers, you know, like the power to uh, to compel somebody to tow a truck that already exists in the criminal code, the power to uh, remove barriers to roadways. So on the one hand, these were things that they didn't need the Emergencies Act to do. Now, they did things that went beyond that, like the freezing of the bank accounts and the the chill on protests across the country, which I guess people don't talk about as much. That was, you know, quite extraordinary, but I would say also unnecessary in terms of the ultimate objective of securing downtown Ottawa. And on the topic of pushback that you just raised, of people pushing back against the uh, criticisms of government overreach, one of the criticisms I've heard a lot ab- about people who sort of take the government to task for for pandemic management is is this: when future generations look back at our pandemic response, uh, probably a lot of people will fail to understand just how utterly terrified decision makers were at the time. I can attest to this. I was still at CBC at that point, doing two stories a day, so I talked to. A a lot of people. People were so scared and governments were scrambling to respond to a deadly virus. They didn't know a lot about it, particularly in the beginning. So I think a lot of people who supported the restrictions wholeheartedly have certainly said to me that desperate times called for desperate measures. Is it possible that you and and myself too and my criticisms are being unfair in failing to recognize how truly unprecedented this pandemic was? So I, I think that we have a lot of sympathy for that view. And I think that we have uh, a lot more of a permissive lens when it comes to the measures taken sort of in the first wave. 
We don't critique the stay-at-home orders taken in spring of 2020. For me, the first time I saw that things were getting a little bit detached from any conceivable public health motivation and going into the realm of hysteria was when the maritime provinces began banning people from Canada who, for example, had cottages or had other reasons, to be honest, to be traveling between the provinces. For example, in the book, we talk about a woman who's who lived in Nova Scotia, whose mother had died in Newfoundland, and she had rented an Airbnb and was ready to go in quarantine for two weeks, had, had you know, timed things accordingly, and Newfoundland was unwilling to allow her to attend her own mother's funeral. So that seems pretty detached from any underlying mechanism of why that would be dangerous. And then moreover, sort of as you know, this went on for about three years. So the longer we got into the pandemic, and the more we saw other jurisdictions experiences, for example, with school shutdowns, even once it became very clear that vaccinated, fully vaccinated people could just as easily spread the virus and get infected. Even after that point, after Delta and Omicron, we had vaccine passports, we had unvaccinated people being banned from taking trains, planes, uh, or aeroplanes. And by the way, at that point, the federal government had their own panel, their own expert panels saying, you know, these restrictions, for example, the quarantine home hotel measures aren't working and should be lifted. And the government plowed ahead with them anyways. So I think that you can have a lot of sympathy for acting out of fear. It certainly was unprecedented. But as more evidence came in, as the the picture became more nuanced, as public health experts, epidemiologists started drawing attention to the fact that just reducing viral transmission is not the only public good in society. We also have mental health. We also have religious liberties. We also have our children whose education is badly suffering. So we, we have to take into account more holistic view of social life. I think it becomes very clear that we had in Canada, there was just an obsessive focus on what's the what's the you know case count. Um, and I think we will look back and see that that was a mistake. And the other point of pushback I wanted to raise is on this issue of a polarization and partisanship. This, these issues really did fall down a certain line. And so you're the executive director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. It describes itself as a national nonpartisan charity devoted to defending the rights and freedoms of Canadians. But Press Progress, which we should say is funded by the left-leaning Broadbent Institute, has said CCF is devoted to protecting right-wing interests and big business interests, and that it has deep ties to the federal Conservative Party and to American Conservatives through the Atlas Network. What would you say to listeners who may hear that and and wonder if this book has a particular partisan agenda? Yeah, certainly. Well, so it's certainly not true that we have any ties to the partisan conservative party. I'm not a partisan person. You can check my background. I used to be a criminal defense lawyer, but as an organization, it's simply not true. We're a legal charity that defends constitutional liberties. And I would point out, I guess maybe this is the strongest point, is that we were just as vociferous in fighting back against Doug Ford as we were uh, Justin Trudeau. It doesn't particularly matter to us what party somebody is from if they're acting in reckless disregard of our rights. And we have some very strong words against the Ford government in the book, including a tip that we received that when the Ford government brought in that very memorable, very grim stay-at-home order in spring of 2021, which uh, basically imposed carding, which allowed officers to ask you anytime you were outside of your house your purpose, 
shut down playgrounds, uh, which luckily, of course, most police forces in the province, except for the OPP, said they were not going to enforce. But we we heard that at the time, the attorney general advised cabinet, this is probably unconstitutional. And the response was, well, by the time it gets to the courts, we'll probably have repealed it. So we're going to do it anyways. That is highly inappropriate for a government to act even in a way that they themselves know better is unconstitutional. So we are nonpartisan in our critiques uh, and we're dedicated to upholding constitutional rights. Uh, We have no ties to U.S. funders or U.S. donors. It's certain that we take a negative liberty stance, meaning we are focused mostly on ways that government has to stay out of the domains of life. Um, I would say the charter is a negative liberty document. If you read it, it's you have the right to freedom of expression and the government can't go in and regulate over that. But but yeah, I guess that, that that's my response to that particular critique. And thank you for bringing it up. I hadn't read that press progress hit piece in a while. But the but the Atlas Network is that not part of? Do you not belong to the Atlas Network? Is there not funding flowing through? So that? the Atlas Network is an incubator for uh, for not for profits and think tanks in the freedom movement. Um, and so we've done things like go to conferences. Um, sometimes they do something called think tank CEO trainings. We we do not get funding from the Atlas Network. And I would say the Atlas Network, you should check out their work. They, they, you know, they incubate groups that are fighting for freedom in Africa and Ukraine and across the world. Um, and they do a lot of impressive work. Well, let's let's talk now just to close. Let's spend a moment on where we go from here. You write in the conclusion to the book that for the most part, the pandemic revealed the existing weakness of Canada's culture of civil liberties and may have permanently weakened that culture further. In your view, what do you think we need to do as a country to get back on track? Well, you know, a public inquiry would actually be a great start to assess where things cross the line and where things could be justified. But I really think the real, you know, response to this has to be cultural, that we have to say, look, if we have constitutionally protected rights and they have no teeth, they have no application, or so we're told by the judiciary in times when we are prevented from just doing the normal things humans do in life going to school, going to church, gathering in community, expressing democratic points of view, then why do we have a charter? Like, what is the nature of our polity? And so not to be too self-serving, but a real reason why we wrote this book was to bring this to top of mind so that in God knows what, you know, what future public emergencies may face us, uh, we will remember and we will hold uh, our government officials, you know, on every level, municipalities, judges, our leaders to to account. There need to be some delineations some demarcations of things that we agree to not do again. We agree to not keep children out of school for, you know, almost two years, unless there's really compelling and really sp- specified evidence of the necessity of that. We agree to not have vaccine passports again, which unfortunately I saw there was a motion brought in the House to to, uh, rule out that possibility, which not surprisingly was voted down. But I, I think really it starts with understanding how poorly our system failed us. 
Well, I'm really glad that you wrote this book. I think it's incredibly important to have this all collected in one place and to to try to restart the public conversation about what happened. And uh, I share your view that I would really like to see an inquiry. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks so much, Tara. is hosted by myself, Tara Henley. And this week's episode is produced by Harrison Lohman. If you value independent journalism, please consider supporting our work by subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. Hold up. 